Ministry Mentorship, Episode 6. Hello and welcome to this episode of Ministry Mentorship. This is Jacob Tapia and you're listening to a podcast dedicated to connecting apostolic leaders with young ministers for the purpose of helping them develop in their ministries. In this episode, we're going to be talking with the General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International. David K. Bernard is a passionate leader who has a heart for revival. He's dedicated to pouring himself into young ministers. I had an opportunity to speak with him recently at our headquarters in St. Louis. Let's join the conversation now. We're here today with Brother David Bernard. He is a He's a lawyer, an author. He's published many books, and uh, he started a church in Austin, Texas. He's been pastoring. He pastored there for 18 years, and he and his wife are now serving as the general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, a position which he's held since 2009. He is a father of three children and has three grandchildren, and I understand you, you also speak Korean, right? Yes, I That's do. That's something maybe people don't know, and, and you also enjoy nature. Yes, Certainly. What, uh, what, what kind of things are your interest in nature? Well, I like to get outdoors, and uh, I like to walk in the woods, take pictures of wildflowers, um, identify the trees, the birds, and so on. It's just a way of getting a break from everything else where nobody can call me, nobody can uh, knock on my office door. Now, tell us your story. Um, I know you, you, you didn't follow what you may say the traditional in fact, you were probably anti-traditional when you first started out going to law school. And, and talk about your story and how you got started in ministry. Well, I didn't intend uh, to go into ministry. I felt very strongly that God would have to call uh, me to ministry if I were to do it. And uh, my parents were missionaries in Korea. That's where I grew up. So over the years, people would say, well, you're going to be a missionary like your dad or, you know, you need to be a preacher. But my parents never... Uh, put that expectation on me. They always taught me to uh, to excel at whatever I did and to be productive in the kingdom of God. But beyond that, I needed to follow whatever calling that God had on my life. So I decided to prepare myself for a uh, career. So I went to college, and then in the process of going to college, I felt eventually, not immediately, that I should go to law school to be a lawyer. And of course, at that time, I did not know one Pentecostal person who was a lawyer, and maybe some who had been converted, but I did not know any young person who was actually going to law school. In fact, I was in a large, successful um, church in Houston, which was considered maybe one of the elite churches with a lot of professional people. At the time I started college, I was the only young person going to college. So even going to college at that time was somewhat untraditional. And certainly going to law school, many people felt like I couldn't be saved. Well, talk to that to that young person, and, and the focus of this is the 18 to 30-year age group. Talk to that young person that's saying, you know, I, I, I feel uh, that God wants me to be in ministry, but at the same time, I don't necessarily feel like I need to go to Bible school, or, or they're kind of struggling with that. Well, I think those years are years of preparation. And even if you're not sure of your exact direction, you should be preparing for a lifetime of service. My thought is you prepare a foundation 
that whatever God wants you to be doing for 50 years, your foundation is big enough to handle that. So for some, it may be Bible college. For some, secular college. For some, it may not even be college. But I think we need to explore all options. And if you are feeling a call to pulpit ministry particularly, there certainly does need to be a concentrated plan of study, which could be Bible college, it could be Urshan college, it could be going to secular college, then going to Urshan graduate school, it could be Purpose Institute, um, or it could be a self-study program in conjunction with some of the others. But there needs to be a definite plan. It shouldn't be just, oh well, I'll just do whatever God calls me to do. Now, you've written several books, and we have one, one listener that wanted to know, what gives you the idea, what, what was the, the, the motivation, I guess, to produce the books and the resources the way that you have? Well, the very first book was In Search of Holiness, and it was my dad's idea. There was no book on holiness in the Oneness Pentecostal movement, maybe some booklets, but no book. It's an urgent need because this is one of our distinctives, and we had no clear presentation and no answer to the questions. So my mother had taught this subject in Bible school in Korea. She had notes. My dad asked me to take those notes and expand it into a book. And so it was really his idea, and the reason was to meet a need. Um, After that book was published, then I began to realize there are many other areas of need. We had books on the oneness of God, but most of them covered one segment or another. There'd be a book, say, on Jesus is Jehovah, which is great. But of course, Trinitarians also believe that Jesus is Jehovah. So that's only part of the story. So I felt the need to write a comprehensive book on the oneness of God. And then there was no book-length treatment on the new birth. Booklets, but no book. Um, There was no verse-by-verse commentary. So I wrote the first one, The Message of Romans. Um, And so my books were basically written to meet needs. And how old were you when you wrote your first book? Well, my first book was published when I was 24, so uh, it was right after I, right when I graduated from law school. But I was actually writing it like two or three years before that. So I would say probably age 22 and 23. I think it's interesting that, and, and I've heard you speak on this before, where you talked about how your schooling and and the path that you had chosen as far as education actually began to help you in the preparation of these books and these resources. And, and talk about to that young person right now that's thinking, well, you know, I want to be in ministry, but I don't really know how this is going to apply or how, how this is going to help me in the future. Well, I think the first thing is you need to follow the leading of the Spirit and really be sensitive to what God has. And if you do feel a call to ministry, certainly train for that ministry, but not simply narrowly. You need to train for life. You need to train for life skills. And since probably we don't know where our ministry is going to lead us in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, just taking a narrow approach, well, I'm going to be doing this, so I'm going to train for this, you may really have no clue as what where you will be. So I would say train as broadly as possible in various forms. And, and certainly, uh, if I had felt a call to preach, I probably would have never gone to law school. I don't think I would have at all. But that's the way the Lord led me. And I think, in retrospect, in my particular case, the skills that I learned were highly useful for the type of ministry that God placed me in. One of, uh, one of our listeners asked the question, when do you know if a move of any kind, whether it's physical or ministry, 
when is that a when is that a leap of faith or just a, a wild jump off the cliff? How do you discern that? Well, I would say there are two different kinds of moves. One is um, a move that it's due to your stage of life. So when I graduated from high school, I pretty much knew I had to do something. When I graduated from college, I had to do something. So some moves are you can anticipate because of the place in life that you're in. And then it becomes a choice. Uh, you know you're going to make a decision, so it just becomes a choice of which option. Um, and I think when you can anticipate that, then you begin, begin praying and asking God in advance to give you direction. You also um, consider the pros and cons. You uh, analyze the various options and the pros and cons of each option. And also you consult with spiritual leaders and mentors in your life. Now, the other kind of move would be you're, you're successful where you are, you're happy where you are, but you feel... How do you know when when it's time to go to another phase of ministry? And I would say several things. One, of course, again, be in prayer for the future, even when you don't know the future. And in my case, at least, uh, I felt God giving me direction for the long-term future, even though I didn't know when it would be. So, for example, my first full-time position of ministry was Bible school teaching, I went there with the idea, this is not going to be the rest of my life. This is probably going to be five years. I was perfectly happy, but as it turned out, it ended up, due to various circumstances, being five years. When I came to St. Louis to be associate editor, I did not think this would, I would be here the rest of my life. As part of making that decision, I felt God saying, this is your next phase. When it would be, I didn't know. It ended up being six years of full time. So I think when you first enter into something, you kind of have a direction from God. Is is this a stage? Is this a step, stepping stone? When I became pastor, started the church in Austin, I felt this is the rest of my life. Um, so you, in advance of any possible move, you need to be in communication with God so you have a sense of the long term. Next thing I would look for is what I call holy dissatisfaction. And that's when you're feeling a change is coming. And sometimes it may manifest itself with you you're being aggravated at what's happening. Maybe you're working under a senior pastor and you start feeling, well, I wouldn't do this, or why is he doing that? And if you're not careful, it can be a critical spirit or a rebellious spirit. But actually, God, there may be really nothing wrong with that situation or with that pastor, but God is trying to tell you it's time to get ready for a move. So when you sense that holy dissatisfaction, then you start praying, okay, God, when, you know, what kind of door should I be looking for and when is it going to be? Now, how can a young person start developing their ministry right now? Like right where they're at in their local church, how can they develop that and begin today? Well, I always advise people in training for ministry or people aspiring to ministry um, three things. First of all, um, be faithful and develop your personal spiritual disciplines. Second, get involved in outreach. I mean, the essence of ministry is winning souls. So if you're not involved in some form of consistent outreach, whether it be home Bible study, personal witnessing, campus ministry, whatever, then you're not really advancing in ministry. Third thing is I would call it in-reach. That is a burden for people who are in the church. Um, reaching out to new converts, reaching out to people on the margins that other people are overlooking, that don't have friends, uh, encouraging people, uh, 
find ways to minister to people who are in the church. And I think if you do those two things, your ministry, uh, as far as outreach and inreach, um, it's not so much about preaching from the pulpit. So I didn't mention that as one of the three priorities, although at some point you do want to find speaking opportunities. But that's not where you start. You don't go around looking for how many opportunities you can to speak. You look for opportunities to win souls and opportunities to encourage and strengthen the souls who are in the church. If you do that, I think further opportunities for ministry will develop. Talk a little bit about those spiritual disciplines, that prayer and fasting and study, and and can you give some, some examples of what has worked for you? Well, that's an ongoing challenge, and especially in my life, there have been different stages, and right now my schedule is very unusual every week. But I would say in general, developing a daily and weekly schedule is is how you um, at least get started with spiritual disciplines. So um, early on, and as I say today, it's I, I can't always use a simple method, but most of my ministry, my desire was to take one day a week for fasting. And usually I would fast from supper or evening meal until the next evening meal, especially if you're actively working or doing things. It's difficult to have the energy to fast a long period of time unless you set aside time where you're reducing your activities. But also, I think a set time of prayer every day. And I remembered uh, one thing that really changed my prayer life, I started. I struggled to find the time to pray and to be consistent. So for one year, I made a commitment that I would um, pray an average of one hour a day for five days a week. So it could be any amount on any particular day, but that was just the goal. And to make sure I kept that goal, I just had a little calendar where I logged the time. And it, it would include time praying before church or in the altars, uh, but it also included time during you know, morning, typically, would be the time. So if I could set aside 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Now, I have not followed that particular pattern consistently since, but that helped break, uh, break through to a better prayer life on a more consistent basis. And part of the success of something like that is having realistic expectations. So if you say, I'm going to pray an hour every day, there's going to be some day where you don't. So my thinking is if you're successful 80% of the time, you're successful. You're not a failure. So maybe one day you pray five minutes, but maybe another day you pray an hour, um, and it's no problem. And that's why I said five out of seven days because there's probably going to be some day so even though you want to pray every day, there may be some day your day is snatched away from you and you're, you're fortunate to get five or ten minutes in. But that isn't a, that's not a failure. That's part of your overall plan. Now you talked a little bit about having a calendar and, and writing some of these things down. What other things do you use or how have you developed the discipline to keep up with everything that you have going on? Well, I think it's very important to um, have a list of your objectives. Now what I do... Um, I look at my long-term goals and my short-term goals. So I have two lists. So here are the things I need to do this year, for example. And then I have a shorter list of here are things I need to do this month. And I keep checking those back and forth so that I, and I may even further subdivide them. Here are the things I need to do this week. And typically what I would do is either at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, 
I would say, what do I need to do today? And I would develop a list of priorities for that day. And so I I look at my long-term goals or I look at my monthly task and I try to prioritize what needs to be done today. So I think that would be the first thing I would say is having a system whereby you are very clear about what you're trying to accomplish and you are very clear about your priorities of what you need to get accomplished. Second thing I would say is you've got to learn to manage your time. And for me, a calendar is indispensable. I put appointments, and this will sound strange to some, but I put appointments with my wife, my family, myself. I block out time because what I find, if you don't do that, then there is always something urgent that comes up. So if somebody says, I need to meet with you today, or I need to meet with you this week, or I need to meet with you tomorrow, if if I don't have a system already in place, it'd be very easy to shove off a family time because this is so urgent. But if I say, well, let me check my calendar, and I look and I see, well, I'm scheduled to um, take my daughter to dinner. I don't tell them that, but I just say, well, I am already have an appointment for this evening, so I'll, let me give you some options. I can meet you you know, in a few minutes, or I can meet you later on this evening. But I can't meet you from 5 to 7 because I've already got an appointment. And everybody understands that. But I don't have to say it's with my daughter or it's with my wife or so on. So if you, you've got to manage your time. What I found as a busy pastor and as a full-time pastor, um, I tried to take Mondays off. And I found the busier I got, the more it's important to block time off. So I told the church, unless it's a true emergency, don't call me on Monday. As a district superintendent, I did the same thing. Here's my cell phone. Here's my email. But Monday's my day off, so unless it's a true emergency, um, I'm not going to be available. And that's where I go walking in the woods or take pictures of wildflowers or, or go swimming or something like that where I'm just really not available. And I found that most crises can be managed. There are not very many crises that are absolutely critical. So you can turn the phone off. You can let the answering machine answer. You can prioritize dinner time with your family. There's no need to take an emergency call in the middle of dinner. If the phone's not on, you don't know it's an emergency. And I learned this the hard way because Pete would call. I'm on the way to the hospital. I'd jump up and just... And often beat them there. So I learned, you know, another 30 minutes is not going to change anything. Now, I have gotten calls where Brother Bernard, my husband's trying to beat me up. I pull the knife on him. You need to tell him if he comes any closer, I'm going to stab him. So I took that call. That's a true emergency. What did you tell him? (laughs) Well, I I negotiated with him. (laughs) How do we best deal with the with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender issues that we're facing in the church and in the community? Well, first of all, uh, we have to treat people with love and respect no matter who they are. We can't feel threatened by people of a homosexual lifestyle. So as much as possible, and I, I did this starting in my college years, I've always throughout my life had people who were involved in a homosexual lifestyle who I considered my friends. They knew what I believed. But I did not shun them. I did not treat them any differently than anybody else. I would have coffee with someone who was homosexual or lesbian. I would um, just treat them as a normal 
coworker or neighbor or friend or whatever they were, you you just have to treat them matter of factly. Now, what that it does not mean you approve of their lifestyle, but just as let's say someone is living with his girlfriend, living in fornication, what are you going to do? You're going to stand outside their house with a poster saying you're going to hell? No, you treat them as a normal human being. That's the same way you should treat somebody who's in a homosexual relationship. Um, so I think that's the first thing, is to calm down and just treat people as people. We respect their human rights. We respect their right to vote. We respect their citizenship. We respect them as individuals. They can be uh, a wonderful person in a lot of ways. They can be highly moral in their thinking about a lot of things. But they're just wrong in this area, and they're a sinner. But that's true of all kinds of sins. So first, that's the first thing. At the same time, we have to be clear that we believe homosexual, the homosexual lifestyle is sin. Um, and in the, as appropriate, we will teach on that. We'll preach on that. But again, not single it out. I think the way we approach it is so important. When I would be preaching from the pulpit as a pastor, if I felt it was appropriate and important to say that abortion is a sin or fornication is a sin or homosexuality is a sin, that's I would say that. But it would be in the context of God has a better plan for your life. Because I have to realize that in my audience are people who are participating in those sins or who have family and friends that they love who are participating in those sins. So I can't just offer a message of condemnation. Jesus himself said, I did not come to condemn the world. My message is basically one of transformation and hope. So we're not compromising, but we offer a positive um, message that God has a better plan for you. I, I think that's the best way to to uh, deal with the issue from a, a pulpit standpoint or from a church standpoint. And I would make further oh, another a couple of comments. We have to avoid a spirit of suspicion. And also, we have to... We cannot buy into the false worldly concept of homosexuality as your identity. So here's what I think. If you commit homosexual acts, that's a sin. But if you refrain from homosexual acts, you're not committing sin. So the first step for someone who's struggling with that kind of lifestyle is stop committing those acts and stop engaging in those fantasies or in that kind of pornography. I would say that to any, like any single young person, it's really the same struggle. You have, you have a struggle in our culture to be sexually pure, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. So if, if there's a young person struggling with homosexual tendencies or temptations or even actions, I would say the first thing, just like any other young person, you got to get control of your desires by the power of the Holy Ghost. And if you do that, I respect you. So I'm not going to put you in a category of a homosexual if you stop committing those acts and stop allowing yourself to indulge in those things, then I'm going to commend you. That's the starting point. Um, so we can't put them in this strange category and beat them up for an identity. The world would try to say, that's your identity. You can't do anything about it. I think the church perspective should be, that's a wrongful act. So let's stop the wrongful acts that displease God, and then we can work on everything else from there. Talk a little bit about our pulpit. Now, each one of us with Twitter, social media, Facebook, we have a pulpit now. Talk about some some ways that we can be Christian while we're using media. Well, I think the principles 
that the Bible describes for appropriate speech apply in social media and all forms of technology. And for some reason, there's a disconnect. So we know that gossip and slander is sinful. We know that uh, reviling people, speaking evil of them is sinful. So if you and I are talking here and I just start cursing you, or maybe I don't curse you, but I just speak in very hateful language, the Bible actually teaches against that. So then what gives me permission to go on Twitter and say the same thing, whether it's about you as a person or you as a class? If it's wrong to get in your face and say those kind of hateful words, it's wrong to get on social media and say those hateful words. So the first thing is we need to have an integrated view of communication, that all communication must be holy and godly. And I, I don't look very much on these blogs and, and comments because I don't have time. But I, I can see where you'll have a news item and then the comments are just filled with hate back and forth, back and forth as people are scoring points. They wouldn't do that. Those same people would not do that in a room sitting down there drinking coffee. But you get in this atmosphere of you, you're anonymous or you, are there at least is there a feeling of anonymity. You're not dealing with the person face-to-face. You're removed from them, and, and you get into a game. It's scoring points. It's making uh, clever statements. It's bashing. Well, that's not proper communication. It's not Christian. It's not conduct- conducive. I mean, it doesn't accomplish any good purpose. If you're trying to win that person to your point of view, that's not going to do it. So I think we have to look at what, what are our Christian principles involved and apply them to all communication. We should also look like what we should also ask ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish? Am I just trying to make myself feel good by a witty and clever response? Am I just trying to vindicate my position by some slam dunk statement? Or am I really trying to influence people who have a different view than I do? If you're trying to influence, then it's going to change the way you talk. And then finally, I would say consider your audience. If your audience doesn't expect the accept the Bible's authority, what's the point of quoting Scripture to say, well, you're going to hell because the Bible says this? The person says, well, why should I believe the Bible? So unless you're uh, willing to engage in a philosophical and theological discussion about the Bible, that's just a pointless exercise. If you're going to communicate, it has to be on a common basis. And so you'll, you, you have to explain... You, you have to explain your position in terms that make sense to the person you're trying to influence. Talk briefly about the the culture that we're living in right now is very tumultuous as far as politics and government. How should we respond to society, to our government? How can we get involved and yet still retain our, our apostolic identity? Well, first of all, I think it's important to separate our political views from um, our worship. So as a church and as a pastor, I don't think we can afford to identify ourselves with a, with a political party. We want people from every walk of life to come into our church and hear the gospel and be transformed. Now, as part of that transformation, they may end up changing their values. Hopefully they will. And a change of values may affect their political choices. But we're not trying to change their politics specifically. So therefore, I want people, whether they're Republican or Democrat or Independent, to be able to come to our church and feel like I'm welcome here. I can vote for whoever I want to and still be a member of this church, be a leader in this church. To take a very practical example, 
90% plus of African Americans vote for a Democratic candidate. So if your public persona of your church is of a conservative Republican church, you're probably going to uh, alienate a lot of African Americans that you might would like to reach. So I don't. I think we've got to be very careful that our public worship and our public ministry cannot be politicized. Having said that, I do think as individual citizens and even as leaders, we need to talk about the importance of moral values in society and how that moral values and biblical values should influence our political decisions. And so as a, as a person, I should be involved politically at least to the extent of voting and maybe a whole lot more than that. Uh, and uh, as a church, while we don't promote any political party or candidate, I think it's okay to tell our people you need to make your voice heard. And certainly on moral issues, such as abortion, that is not. Maybe political parties are uh, adopting positions on that, but I'm not, I'm not supporting a political party. I'm supporting a moral position, whoever may endorse it. And so I think we can make our voice heard. I think we should make our voice heard. But in the long run, I think as a church, we're most effective winning people one by one. So yes, I think we should take a stand against abortion. We should teach in favor of life. We should give scripture. We should talk to our young people. But in the end, probably the best thing we can do is as we win young people and as we disciple young people, they're not going to get abortions. And that's going to do more and as we minister to families of broken homes and uh, you know, pregnant moms who are not ready to raise a child, then through New Beginnings and Tupelo Children's Mansion and other areas, we're going to be salvaging uh, babies and that would otherwise be aborted. So I think the one-on-one effect should not be minimized. That is a very practical way that we can influence our society. As you pastored and as you preach and, and travel around the United States and the world, what are some of the, the best forms of outreach and methods that you're seeing in place right now? Well, I would say from my experience as a pastor and my observation of, of growing churches, the single most effective means of winning people is personal relationships. In our church in Austin, I tracked the first 10 years of our converts were won through personal relationships, family, friends, referrals, coworkers. So that's always got to be at the forefront. We've got to continually promote the burden of evangelism. We've got to teach practical tools for evangelism. And I know that's not a method, but I'm telling you that's overall. And part of that is we've got to make our church services attractive to visitors from the way we speak, from uh, the diversity that's expressed, from the music, because that has not only a direct benefit of of making visitors feel welcome and and so forth, but it has an indirect benefit of putting your people at ease so that they will invite their friends. There are many people who are faithful to a church, but they're not motivated to invite their friends because they know the pastor is going to embarrass them or somebody else is going to embarrass them, or, or at least they're afraid of that. So by creating an atmosphere that's comfortable for visitors, not only do you uh, make visitors feel comfortable, but you make your church members feel comfortable to invite visitors. And so that's often underappreciated. As far as trying to be a little bit more specific, I certainly think uh, home Bible studies are a great way, 
or home friendship groups, anything that gets people in an informal setting uh, to have the dual purpose of learning about Scripture and making connections with people in church, those kind of methods are always going to be effective, uh, and they're always going to be good. I would also say some churches that focus primarily on one or two methods, that's great, but I've found a diversity of methods. Use a diversity of methods to reach different kinds of people, but put your primary emphasis on the things that are working best for you. Now, talk to that talk to that eighteen year old that's saying, "You know, Brother Bernard, I've I've never taught a Bible study. I don't feel like I'm a good speaker. I don't really. Uh, how can I win a soul? Okay, how can I do that? Well, the first thing is everybody should have a personal testimony. Uh, everybody, either you have a direct testimony of how you were saved from the world, or if you're raised in church, you need to have some ex- defining experiences in your life." the time when you were healed, the time when you received the Holy Ghost, the time when you made a personal consecration, uh, the time when you were struggling with your faith and God gave you some answers. Everybody should have a testimony. Then everybody should learn some basic scriptures about salvation. And that doesn't require a genius. It doesn't require a Bible quizzer. It just requires a basic knowledge of the Bible, a basic study. I mean, most guys can rattle off sports statistics. If they have the capacity for that, they have the capacity to learn a few verses of Scripture. So when you have a basic, you're basically equipped. You don't have to be a public speaker. Beyond that, it's a personal relationship, as I've already stated. Do you have any friends? Well, they should tell by your lifestyle there's something about you. There will be opportunities to ask questions. There will be opportunities to talk about your activities. Some of those opportunities will lead uh, to uh, winning a soul. So I believe that every Christian should have this attitude of soul winning. It's not an artificial activity that you do one day a week, um, but it's just the way you live. It should be your lifestyle. As you make friends, friends know who you are. They know your activities. There will be natural opportunities to invite them or to explain to them or share a testimony or to pray with them. You may have someone who expresses a need instead of saying, well, why don't you come to my church and let my pastor pray for you? You could say, well, you know, I had a situation similar to what you're facing, um, and God help me, would you like to pray right now? I mean, that's, that's how simple it is. Talk about your vision for apostolic young people. What do you see happening right now, and what do you see in the future? Well, You know, we face, I think, increasing challenges in our society as it becomes postmodern and post-Christian. And what I simply mean by that is each person has their own view of truth, and it seems that society is saying there is no absolute truth. So that creates a lot of challenges for our young people. But at the same time, it creates a lot of opportunities for them because someone who just has a tradition or a doctrine or just has the Bible itself without a real power, they lose in this culture. But someone who has a personal testimony and a personal experience with God, they've got something that appeals to this culture. So if you say, well, the Bible says you should do this and this and this, a lot of people are just going to tune you out right there. But if you say, let me tell you what happened to me, everybody's interested. So... I think there's a a great opportunity for apostolic young people um, not to deny their faith. One of the things they need to do is really dig in and get get their faith solid for themselves. 
but there's a great opportunity to, to have it, an authentic testimony and to have the power of God in a world that rejects authority but yet is hungry for spirituality. So seemingly the world is rejecting, quote, truth, but they're hungry for something real. So if you, if you talk more in terms of what's real, then you can lead them to what's true because what we would say is our experience ultimately reflects the underlying truth that there is a God and that what the Bible says is true and, and what the Bible promises is available to us. So I would say there's a, a wonderful opportunity for apostolic young people to be distinctive in our day and to make a, a big difference in the lives of people. I'd, I would say that apostolic young people need to pursue all forms of education, all forms of careers, all forms of training to prepare themselves in our increasingly diverse and information-based age. Uh, and they need to realize that um, they, you know, it, it might seem like that we are a minority or that we are, the culture is rejecting us, but I don't really think so. I, I think we have an experience and we have power with God that sets us apart from even most other Christian groups. And so we need to understand, in, in one sense, the challenges are greater, but the opportunities are also greater. What's your vision for our general conference, and, and how could young people get involved in our general conference? Well, I'm trying to focus the general conference more on teaching, preaching, worship, and prayer. Now, there is an aspect of business, which is for our licensed ministers, and that's very important, and that's the, you know, the official reason why we have a general conference. But we're trying to structure the conference so that it is both an informative experience and an inspirational experience. And certainly I would like to see more young ministers and just more young people in general participate. I think if they would, it would bring a, a, a new energy and excitement. And I think the services are streamlined. That's our goal, and, and we've actually implemented, especially the last couple of years, is to have a more streamlined service. And by that, I mean not necessarily it has to be short, but whatever we do has to be meaningful and build toward the goal. And so usually we're worshiping about an hour, and the preaching lasts however long it lasts. But in two hours, we've probably accomplished what we're trying to do, and then it's time for prayer and worship at the altar for however long we want. And so that's my vision for the practical side. But in the day, we're doing seminars on Thursday and Friday. And here, these are all kinds of seminars for ministers, for laypersons, for other interested individuals. And I think that could be one of the highlights because at a very minimal cost, you're able to participate in a whole variety of classes that will meet your interests and needs. And it's also a great time to connect. I, I noticed one of the biggest parts of that for me is is even in the hallways, is being able to to talk to other ministers and and uh, connecting with other ministries. There may be an eighteen year old right now that's sitting there saying, "Well, I, I don't have any money. How am I going to get the general conference? How to, how to help them with that?" Well, I, I would say I didn't mention earlier, but yes, fellowship is a very important component as well. As far as cost. If, if it's anywhere in the area, perhaps you're able to drive and stay at a, a lower-cost hotel or with friends or family, and therefore it may not be uh, a big cost. The actual cost of registration is not very big. Uh, so I think transportation and lodging is, is, your, is your most important consideration here. So you can do it. 
If you stay at the headquarters hotel, it's, of course, a little bit more expensive than if you stay in an outlying area. So I guess you just have to plan it. And, of course, years ago, that's really what most people, even most preachers did, is they stayed with family, friends, or local saints. But our culture has changed from that. But especially if you're a young person or a young minister, there's still ways to economically uh, achieve those things. How can someone get in touch with you, Brother Bernard? And and are there any other resources or, or anything else that you'd like to mention? Well, if uh, you want to get in touch with me personally, you can call the office, and uh, my secretary will track me down, um, 314-837-7300. Or you can email me at dbernard at upci.org, and I do personally receive all those emails. Now, if I get inundated with a 1,000, I will probably have to ask my administrative assistant to go through those. But to this point, at least, I'm able to respond personally. Uh, I am on Facebook and Twitter. However, I don't really have time to check those on a daily basis, so those aren't really very good ways to get a hold of me. It might be a week or a month before you will get a response, but it may be a month just because that's more of a social uh, medium, and I've got to handle my business contacts. So phone or letter or email, and really, if if you do write a letter, put your email address because I'd probably rather email you if I could. But um, those are official ways that I will personally get and will personally respond. Now, if it's something that uh, just an information item that an assistant can respond, well, you might get a response from someone else. But if it's something directed to me, then I will do my best to respond personally. As far as resources, I guess it depends on what you want. But uh, launcherministry.com is a new website which has a lot of training videos. I've done 24 of them, which is for ministers in training or or active ministers who want uh, further training or even a refresher. Um, If you're interested in church growth, um, I have a book called Growing a Church. If you're just interested in more general things, of course, I've got a lot of books on various subjects. And um, there is, I do have some uh, reading recommendations. I believe they're still on um, the church website that we did, uh, newlifeaustin.com. So I think I still have an area there which has recommendations from me, which they keep on that site. So that's a start. In closing, I wonder if you could just take a minute and and pray for that young person right now that they feel the pull of God towards ministry, and they're just kind of in that phase where they're they're trying to find their way. They're they're reaching out. They're seeking God. Would you just pray for them? Sure. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings to us. We thank you for young men and women who have a desire to live for you, to serve you, and to minister effectively. And right now, Lord, I ask that you would give direction for those who are seeking direction. Lord, you know how to speak to us in our individual ways. And I ask that you would speak, and I ask that you would help us to discern your voice, to take the right step, to take the next step in your plan. Lord, I ask that you would open the right doors, and I ask that you would close the wrong doors. I ask for your encouragement and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brother Bernard, thank you so much for being with us today. It's, it's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Appreciate it.